Tackling modern day slavery at source is a priority for the UK and the British government. Slavery is closer than you think. Help free the UK from modern slavery. I believe it is more important than ever that we not only continue the fight against modern slavery, but that we accelerate it. From Sports Direct warehouses to nail bars, awareness raising campaigns warn that modern slavery is happening all around us. Over Christmas, fashion brand Boohoo cut ties with 64 garment suppliers in Leicester after it came out that factories were paying their workers as little as £3.50 an hour. And this month, the Foreign Secretary said he would clamp down on companies who used forced labour in their supply chains. We won't sacrifice our values or our security. It is truly horrific. Barbarism we had hoped lost to another era being practised today as we speak in one of the leading members of the international community. But how useful is the concept of modern slavery? What kinds of exploitation does it disguise? And what does it say about how we've designed our economy? Over recent years, safe and legal routes to get to the UK have closed down, which is why you see people making these death-defying journeys. And as we crack down on that kind of entry, we push people into those desperate situations and people aren't left with any alternatives. For the most part, these detainees are not hardened criminals, yet we treat them as criminals with little compassion at all. For this first episode of a new series of the Weekly Economics podcast, we're finding out the truth about modern slavery. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really excited to be joined down the line by writer, activist and author of new book, The Truth About Modern Slavery, Emily Kenway. Hi, Emily. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being with us. I know you've been doing so much uh, amazing media work around the book. We're very lucky to have been able to snap you up. It's an absolute pleasure. Brilliant. So let's dive in. Theresa May called modern slavery the greatest human rights issue of our time. But Emily, your book challenges how useful the concept of modern slavery actually is. So could you start off by just explaining what modern slavery means? Yeah, absolutely. And so The most simple approach to this is the superficial definition. So modern slavery is just an umbrella term, an overarching term for a range of severely exploitative circumstances. So that includes human trafficking, uh, forced labour, domestic servitude, various types of exploitative circumstances that all come together under this umbrella term that is about being in a situation that is not easy for you to get out of and that is really harmful, basically. But the book really talks about moving away from definitional questions, which um, academics and and many people have done a lot of work on, to say, how does this idea operate as a political story? And this is where it becomes really problematic as a phrase, and not only as a phrase, of course, but as a whole idea about exploitation. So, When we think of modern slavery, the story about exploitation it constructs and that's been constructed by politicians, by philanthropists, by corporates, is of exploitation as a kind of uh, exceptional and anomalous phenomenon, something that occurs perpetrated by deviant individuals or groups of individuals and therefore totally separate from the general socioeconomic conditions. And crucially, if it's this like random evil aberration caused by criminals. It's not a political issue. That's what we're told. And that's what you see proponents of this 
modern slavery ideas saying, like literally saying, this is an issue above party politics. And it's meant to be that wherever we are on the political spectrum, we're all on the same side against this unique evil, this criminal anomaly. And then you start to see that in the language that's used by what are called new abolitionists. So people um, advocating this particular story about exploitation. So they'll describe modern slavery as a parasite, a virus. We need to inoculate people from it. We need to scrub supply chains clean. And so it's exactly that thing that it's this random occurrence it's an aberration and we all think it should go away now of course clearly the phrase modern slavery is resting on our connotations around historical slavery and that's where these characteristics come from this kind of anomaly idea this not political idea because the nationalistic story that we have about historical slavery is that the UK were the great abolitionists, right? So William Wilberforce saved the day and modern slavery speeches will often reference him. And you had the 2019 Tory manifesto for the general election had this amazingly uh, duplicitous phrase, something like the UK has long been a beacon of freedom and human rights. It was for historical slavery and it is today for modern slavery. And it's all about this storyline that we were all against historical slavery. It was this accident of history, this evil accident, and we eradicated it, which is obviously untrue. We perpetrated it in the first place. It was a product of underlying ideology, racist colonial ideology. And indeed, we actually replaced historical slavery with exactly the kind of exploitation we are now calling modern slavery. So systematic trade of Indian and Chinese people onto plantations. So this whole idea, what does modern slavery mean? Okay, sure, it means severe exploitation. But what it really means is a really convenient lie serving to separate off exploitation from really important political questions. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So in the way that I guess it's being conjured, so like when people like Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab say things like modern slavery is barbarism that we had hoped was lost to another era yeah. and all that kind of stuff, it's kind of this frame that you're talking about, which makes modern slavery seem like it's an evil practice that doesn't belong in modern society. But what you're saying is that this kind of exploitation is actually an intrinsic part of the fabric of the global economy. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Partly that um, and partly that it's produced by political choices. So one of the things I think is really important to talk about is that obviously offenders are part of this picture. There are people who are horrifically exploiting people and, and there needs to be some some approach to justice with regard to that. But people are not just born randomly vulnerable to being exploited. Vulnerability is constructed. It's constructed by political choices. So for example, immigration policy being one of those choices. So that means sort of harder borders or the hostile environment stopping people being in regulated sectors. So when you start to see that actually the problem here is that we are making people vulnerable with choices about um, economic precarity, immigration policy, lack of social safety nets, whatever it might be, then you start to see that the modern slavery story is hiding that from us and we're not seeing how it is driving these really severely awful situations. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, I guess some people would argue in line with that, that by questioning the idea of modern slavery, that we're kind of dismissing the exploitation that very much does exist, that people are experiencing around the world today. So uh, kind of building on that, what would you, how would you respond to that point particularly? 
Yeah, and it's certainly a point that I'm sure is going to get made to me a lot. There are a couple of brilliant um, academics who say that criticising modern slavery, as in this story about exploitation, criticising it is kindred to criticising motherhood and apple pie, which I think is perfect, not only because it is like criticising something everyone agrees with, like, but also because obviously motherhood and apple pie have quite like nationalistic right-wing connotations, so it's a perfect encapsulation. The, the thing is... The risk here is a misunderstanding of what it is that I'm saying, which is never that exploitation doesn't exist. Really severe, awful exploitation. I've worked on this for many years and and I'm very aware of that. But it's to say that the story being told, the way that it's being deployed politically is actually creating conditions for that exploitation to thrive. And here we have to hold in tension the reality of how that political story is operating versus the lived experience of people who've survived really awful exploitation. So if we look at overseas domestic workers, it's a really useful um, example. So these are migrant, mainly women, who come to the UK to work in private households as things like nannies and housekeepers. And currently in the UK, they're on a visa that effectively ties them to their employers. It makes it very difficult for them to change employers and not end up subject to the hostile environment. So that obviously creates a massive power asymmetry and leads to really abusive conditions like, you know, people being made to sleep on the floor, given leftovers to eat, sexual harassment, physical abuse, not being paid, like really, really awful. And those women and many other people in situations that are comparable do feel enslaved. You know, they feel that they have had their freedom, their rights, their personhood taken away. And we have to respect that testimony and that description. And that has been co-opted and used to try to separate their reality and their pain from the underlying drivers. So in this case, that visa and that's why, for example, I quote a, um, an Irish politician in the book who in an op-ed has this corker of a line where he says victims of trafficking are not immigrants, which is just an incredible kind of expose of the underlying rationale of modern slavery thinking, right? Because for him, what he's saying is, and you see this all through this topic in, in from politicians, that modern slavery is something totally separate to immigration policy. We should not be talking about immigration policy if we're talking about modern slavery. You literally have Tory peers saying that with regard to overseas domestic worker visa as well, despite all the evidence to the contrary. So it's really trying to hold in tension the importance of people describing their experience in the way that they wish to and ensuring that political change is possible and isn't co-opted. Mm, okay. Okay. This makes sense. I guess in, in my head, I think what I'm comparing it to, um, and I hope I'm following you correctly, but I guess constructions around things like, for example, like the neoliberal wellness economy and how not only does that essentially that functions to kind of obfuscate the lived reality of, say, workers in particular settings along the lines of saying we're going to be creating this healthy relational or whatever environment for you to work in as a response to the fact that you're experiencing high rates of depression, anxiety, etc. in order to at least in part obfuscate the fact that we are the policies and practices that we're using are the very cause of that depression and anxiety. Yeah. Is that a fair comparison? It is a fair comparison and very specifically with regard to corporate behavior, actually. So um, one of the things that's 
gone wrong with this way of talking about exploitation. I should say like in the 2000s and 2010s when this became a popular term, in some ways it was used by campaigners to try to get attention to exploitation because obviously it's a an eye-catching phrase, right? And it's really unfortunate that that's effectively backfired. But what you see with corporates in relation to this topic is that there's a lot of corporate kind of showy, shiny activity about modern slavery. And it's deeply, deeply embedded in the realm of corporate social responsibility, CSR. Now, CSR, you know, arose concomitant with neoliberalism and is entirely about not regulating businesses, but allowing them to select voluntary action to solve the problems that they create. And modern slavery is entirely within that house, creating this kind of moral foil for businesses where they say, oh, you know, look at our modern slavery action. But actually what they do is choose options that don't really help the underlying problem in in a comparable way to what you're saying. So for example, they'll train staff to spot the signs of a slave, but they will not do anything about their purchasing practices, which is the amount of money and expectations around timelines and stuff they put on suppliers and that drive down labor conditions, cause risky subcontracting, bring forced labor into supply chains. So they will not touch the business model, but they will have a piece of paper like that they make their suppliers sign, for example, that says we won't use modern slavery. Um, And it's exactly a kind of comparable in that way, a complete failure to look at the structural reality. And it also, in a similar way, because of this idea that modern slavery is this like exceptional criminal parasite, right? Like you will hear always people saying it's like infiltrated supply chains. Criminals have infiltrated supply chains. We need to scrub our supply chains clean of this thing. And that makes the whole conversation about exploitation in the global corporate economy into one that's about crime. So policing becomes relevant, partnerships with law enforcement in your supply chains, Mm -hmm. rather than one about general working conditions and abuse. And unions, what have unions got to do with a crime? So there we see this erasure of unions and workers' rights being part of a solution to something which is about workers' rights. Mm, Yeah. So essentially you end up talking about exceptions rather than the rules. So I want to take a a deeper look at some of the different aspects of the modern slavery frame. So let's start with uh, immigration and borders, which you've touched on already. But in December, as I'm sure listeners know, four men were convicted of manslaughter over 39 Vietnamese people that were smuggled into the UK um, and died in the back of a lorry. And at that time, Preeti Patel called this a case of human trafficking. But you've said that that was inaccurate. Why do you think that was inaccurate? Well, it it was inaccurate. The people were convicted of migrant smuggling, which is a different crime. Migrant smuggling is moving people across international borders for profit. It's not exploiting people, which you need. You need exploitation or intention to exploit for a crime of trafficking. And this is a perfect case to demonstrate how the modern slavery frame operates so perniciously, specifically with regard to immigration policy. So as exactly as you say, Aisha, in October 2019, when this news broke that a lorry had been found with 39 people dead in it, you immediately saw the local MP and Priti Patel referring to this as a case of human trafficking. And indeed, I started getting a lot of phone calls to be like their trafficking commentator about this. And I was completely bemused in a way as to why this was happening, because there was no way that law enforcement knew that this was a case of trafficking, because obviously the people had passed away and they would need evidence of exploitation or intention to exploit. And the nationality of the people who lost their lives was misreported for the first couple of days. So certainly very little information was known. 
And the reason why people like Priti Patel speak of human trafficking immediately when they see things like this is because in the public imagination, an instance of human trafficking is the fault of the traffickers. Uh, It's the fault of these deviants who've caused this tragedy. But when we understand that this was people trying to cross borders to build a better life, to, you know, send money home, it becomes a conversation about borders creating death. And that's obviously not very palatable to politicians, which becomes even more apparent when you know that in November 2019, so one month later in Essex as well, 10 men were found in the back of the lorry struggling to breathe. And they were obviously, thankfully, the lorry doors were opened in time for them, but they were all arrested promptly for suspicion of uh, immigration offences. And there is no difference between those two cases at the moment of the lorry doors opening, except some people being dead, some people being alive. So it's a political choice. And you see this around the world with this topic. So borders become about protecting us from trafficking. That is how this is used. And so Donald Trump did this all the time with the Mexico wall and lurid tales about women being trafficked into sexual exploitation, despite the fact that people on the ground said that this was just not true. Uh, The former Italian prime minister, Matteo Renzi, wrote this absurd op-ed in the New York Times of all places where he explains how tragic it is that people are losing their lives in the Mediterranean and that it's because of this horrific trade in human beings, human trafficking. And then he says, what we need to do is use anti-piracy tactics on these boats. So that means sniper fire. So he is saying we've got boats of victims who are tragically being traded. Let's shoot them up. That is literally what he's saying. And If you start to pay attention to the language used, we have a similar thing with regard to Calais migration in the UK Parliament. You start to see this modern slavery story for what it is. And I really wanted to, you know, it's part of the reason the book is called The Truth About Modern Slavery, to expose how this is being deployed in a way that is is truly heartbreaking and ruining people's lives. Uh, You also see it internally. So with the hostile environment laws, They have often been legitimized on the grounds that criminalizing migrants will stop exploitation happening. So in 2016, that was the government's line about introducing the illegal working offense that makes it a crime to work as an undocumented person. Everywhere they spoke, they were saying this line, which is using illegal labor exploits workers, right? So they're telling you that they're helping tackle modern slavery by creating this illegal working offence, when in reality, it's creating the category of illegal labour. It is criminalising people that facilitates exploitation because you push them into the informal economy, they can't seek help safely, and so on. So it's really about immigration policy being legitimised by kind of public imagination about trafficking and these topics. And it's really quite hideous, frankly. Mm, And so essentially you're kind of arguing, or at least part of it, is that this modern slavery frame can result in harder borders. Essentially it can facilitate an anti-immigrant narrative disguised as a kind of protectionist or, I guess, saviourist narrative. Yeah, um, and that's literally exactly what it does. So actually after Priti Patel was saying that the Essex thing was trafficking, you then had conservative politicians starting to ask questions about whether there should be more lorry checks and this kind of thing. And it's exactly how it operates with regard to borders. Uh, it also, the general kind of thought about trafficking is that it's a crime of abduction, kidnapping. That's what people tend to think about when you 
talk to them about it. And in reality, that's a very, very small amount of it. Trafficking is more normally migration that's gone wrong. So someone's ended up being exploited during a, a migration journey that's gone wrong in some way. And when we are given, when we are fed a story that's about the criminal offender, we don't see the fact that so much of this is about a lack of appropriate migration pathways. We don't see that a lot of this is about a lack of economic options for people where they are and that they are intelligent, rational people making a decision about their livelihood, not people who are just like duped by some con man that no one else would believe in. And so it is um, really harmful for kind of dehumanising people that do fall victim to exploitation as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just before we move on to talking about corporations, then I've heard this phrase raid and rescue model a few times banded around in regards to modern slavery. Could you tell us what that is um, and what's wrong with it? Yeah, 100%. I'm glad you've heard that phrase because the more we can popularize these phrases as well and what's wrong with them, it's really helpful. Um, Raid and rescue is basically the tactical symptom of this underlying idea that modern slavery is just a crime and that we need a law enforcement response to solve it. So it is what it sounds like, that the solution to modern slavery is to raid somewhere. So, for example, a brothel or a factory and to rescue the people there who are being victimized and... Of course, it's true that sometimes people want to get out of situations that they're in. But firstly, this is really malignantly deployed, uh, particularly with regard to the sex work sector on brothels where there is no trafficking, for example. But also part of the modern slavery story is this idea of rescue, of liberation. Like you can't move for organisations or projects or whatever that have freedom in the title of them in this in this domain and it's a really key part of the fairy tale basically of new abolition and in reality what you see when people are able to get out of exploitative circumstances is that they often end up back in them because there aren't better economic options because they can't legalize their immigration status and so on so it's again this total kind of narnia oh look we've got them away from the baddies and now everything's going to be fine and um I often think about this unbelievably annoying BBC documentary in 2019 called The Prosecutors that followed the prosecution of a woman for trafficking of Vietnamese teenage girls in nail bars. And they had been exploited in terms of like legal definitions. They weren't paid to be working there. Um, so it was illegal what was happening and it sort of did meet the definition of trafficking. But this girl, I think, I can't remember how old she was, about 18, gave an interview to um, the police, which was filmed. And in it, her name is Ten, and in it she says, I was happy there with the woman who's being prosecuted. She bought me clothes and she gave me food and I had somewhere to live. And I talk about this in the book because, no, it's not good enough that she was being exploited and not paid and indeed that she's not got access to education or whatever. That's not good enough. But the reality of the world we live in is that that is the best option we're giving her. And that what probably happened to 10, because this is what we do, is that we supported her for a limited time with a very low stipend and then deported her back to destitution in Vietnam. That's what we do most of the time with victims who are identified as official victims by government. And that's why the dedication of the book is for all those who should have better options, because a lot of this is really about options. And that's not a story that people in power want us to tell. 
Okay. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. That was really, really useful. So let's move on to another aspect of the modern slavery frame then. Um, So corporations and their public commitments to tackling modern slavery, we've touched upon already, but I want to go a bit deeper. So you've said that this makes corporations seem like heroes. Can you go a bit deeper on what you mean by that and why that's a problem? Yeah, so you have this approach from kind of new abolitionists and and indeed literally said in speeches by them that I um, use some excerpts from in the book that brands, global brands are part of the solution and it's a very capitalist friendly approach to it. And what it does, because we haven't regulated businesses properly, it allows them, as I said, to choose their own options for what they do. So they do these superficial things that kind of fluff around the edges and don't in any way tackle the deep drivers. And there's there's loads of examples that I could give like that. But generally, it will be things like maybe they will make sure that there's an app that can be used by uh, people on site if they want to report a problem. Okay, that's a good thing, but they won't do anything about how they are subcontracting much more than they actually need to for efficiency purposes, which basically means they're trying to have as few people on their permanent payroll as possible and give as few people rights, that kind of thing. So like overuse of agency workers, for example. You also see this obsession with using audits. And I explain in the book, You know, audits do not sound sexy, but they're really important for understanding the like emperor's new clothes of what's going on here. You will never find a company that's saying it's taking action on modern slavery that isn't talking about doing audits, but audits don't work. There's so many examples of uh, cases of severe exploitation coming to light when audits have just happened. They talk about one of those in the book and they don't work because audits are basically like um, a snapshot. You go into a workplace, got your clipboard maybe interview some people who may or may not have been selected by management you don't have any powers to check paperwork and you see what seems to be going on at that time and this use of audits makes sense if you think that exploitation is this anomaly right let's spot the parasite let's extricate the parasite it's the corporate version of raid and rescue but actually exploitation is an ongoing endemic situation that arises when you have very low protection of people's rights, either through unions or through labour market enforcement. And so audits don't do anything about that at all, but they're becoming this replacement for unionisation, which is more like camera footage. You can think of unions as camera footage. It's always ongoing. You can always access support for your rights, push for better conditions and so on, versus this audit that is... um, paid for by the company that it's apparently scrutinizing. So you start to see all these dynamics playing out, which are all about power. The entire modern slavery story is about maintaining the power imbalances that are already in place and that create exploitation in the first place. Okay. So yeah, just uh, yet another example of these, I guess I don't know what you would call it. I mean, I guess it's greenwashing when it's climate. I don't know what color the wash is in this, but yeah, (laughs) I don't know. Red washing maybe? No. Blue blue washing? Yeah, let's go with that. Um, So let's talk about one more topic that comes up a lot when people discuss modern slavery, which is sex trafficking. Some people believe that a ban on sex work will stop sex trafficking. What do you think about that? So it's one of the most heartbreaking facets of this. And um, I think it's one of the chapters that's kind of most, most important in the book. Essentially, firstly, trafficking for sexual exploitation does happen. 
it is not the same as people consensually choosing to sell sex. And I try to draw that out really carefully in the chapter. I tell the story of um, a woman who uh, was living in Eastern Europe and working in a cafe. A man sort of chatted her up and they started going out and had a perfectly normal relationship. He met her parents, all of these kinds of things. And they decided to move together several months later to his home country adjacent to hers. And on arrival there, he said, oh, look, I've got to go and have a business meeting. I'll just drop you off at the flat with my friends and I'll be back in a minute. And she never saw him again. And she was forced into sexual exploitation. She was moved countries and she eventually escaped uh, in Scotland, actually jumping out of a window. That is not the same as the many, many uh, women and other people who gave testimony to a great Bristol University research report in 2019 explaining why they do sex work. And it was things like poverty, lack of alternative work, lack of flexible work, caring responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera, and trans-exclusionary workplaces. They're clearly not the same thing. And I think it's profoundly disrespectful to both sides to conflate those things. And what you really see here is that fears about human trafficking in the sex industry have been co-opted by people who wish to eradicate sex work overall. They've always existed. Many faith groups have held that opinion historically. And your 1970s kind of radical feminists who decided it was all exploitation. And there's really clear examples in the book of the disingenuousness of this. So for example, there in the 2000s, there was a faith umbrella group purporting to tackle sex trafficking, who were called Churches Alert Against Sex Trafficking in Europe. And the acronym that they operated under was CHASTE, wow. which obviously yep. is about sexual impurity, no sex outside matrimony, right? So, I mean, it's not even very well hidden, you know, and there are loads of examples still today, especially in the US of this. And this conflation is, it's just horrific because firstly, it leads to completely skewed public understanding, policymaker understanding about the numbers of people being trafficked in the sex industry. So in your tabloids speak how many sex slaves there are. And the bit in the chapter where I explain this, it really does beg a belief. I was shocked by the detail of it that I was finding and how absurd it is. Um, so essentially, it's usually that they've decided like all migrant sex workers are trafficked and then variations on that theme. Even though you have amazing, brave sex working women campaigning under slogans like foreign, not forced. Mm. So these women who are marginalized already in society are rendered, you know, not good enough to speak for their own experience. You also see this with regard to raids. So I mentioned raids earlier. I sort of having a suspicion what I'd find. I did some freedom of information requests for the book on brothel raids that were reported by senior police and or by press as anti-trafficking, as rescuing victims. And I FOI'd how many women were referred from those specific raids in those specific places to our national um, framework for supporting victims of trafficking. And none were, wow. even though these have been reported in the press as being about that topic. So it's really, again, reason for the title of the book. This chapter really, the title is really apt for it. And what this all does is point towards like exactly what your question said, Ayesha, which is that um, the solutions, if all sex work is trafficking, then the solution would be to eradicate the sector as a whole, right? And that's where you get calls for criminalization in various ways, criminalizing the sector as a whole, criminalizing just the customers, which is a horrifically popular choice, even though it really harms sex working women. And the thing that we have to 
be aware of is that the evidence on traffickers, on the offenders, who of course are part of the picture, but we're, we're missing the systemic part, they tend to be generalists, not specialists as criminals. So like, you might have a specialist criminal who's really good at forging banknotes, and that's just what they do all the time. <laughs> or nowadays, I guess, credit cards, contactless, I don't know what they do. But generalists, they're looking for a way to make money. And they will walk through whatever door is open for them to do that. When we criminalize a sector, i.e. sex work, partially or wholly, in the name of ending trafficking, we are effectively turning out the lights in that sector and making it a really safe space for people to exploit people in it. We are stopping sex working women being part of the solution, even though there's really amazing examples of sex worker-led organizations being able to get people into better situations and out of exploitation. And it's just obviously stupid to create a sector where people have no rights and no safety if what we're trying to do is stop exploitation happening. And it's really sad how how sex working women are being erased from this and how their voices are not being heard. Mm, I would love to talk more about that, but um, I wanted to actually ask a follow-up around the Nordic model, again, that I've heard kind of bandied around. What is that in relation to the sex work question and what does that have to do with modern slavery? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So the Nordic model is a model of legislation, a law that criminalizes the customers of sex work. Allegedly, it does not criminalize sex workers. It is legitimized on the grounds that it would tackle trafficking because people who advocate it think that they need to eradicate the sector as a whole. So by making the customers illegal, you're effectively trying to eradicate the sector as a whole. However, firstly, there's no evidence that it helps lower trafficking. It already exists in lots of countries, has done for many years. Absolutely no evidence. Same number of victims a few years before and a few years after it's introduced. And there is a wealth of heartbreaking evidence that it makes the lives of sex working women much more dangerous and more impoverished. And indeed, that it does not decriminalize the women. In fact, in Ireland two years ago, I think, two migrant sex workers were jailed for selling sex, one of whom was pregnant at the time. They, Ireland has this law in place, but that's because usually in countries where they have it, they keep other laws in place. Like in Ireland, it was for brothel keeping. So you still, as a woman, apparently it's illegal to sell sex, but you're not. it's illegal to work together for your own safety. Mm, okay. So not quite the solution then. No. Um, thanks for explaining that. That's really useful. Okay. So just a couple more questions before we let you go. Um, so the government and charities often run campaigns educating the public on how to spot the signs of modern slavery so that they can report them to the police. Similar to obviously other awareness raising campaigns that we see around kind of reporting suspicious activity, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think those campaigns affect the way that we think about modern slavery and, and do they work? Yeah, it's a great question. And so I think that there is a small role to play for awareness raising, but this is in the same way as there is for anything that is like harming people. So for example, if you saw a man beating up a woman in the street, maybe you'd think that it would be good if you could do something about that. It's just the same as everything in society where we hope to stand up for each other when we're experiencing harm. But it's massively overstated. And this is like classic neoliberalism, you know, it is our own individual responsibility to police this, this strange idea rather than solving the deep issues. It fundamentally can only be mopping up after the fact. It's one of the bizarre things when you work on this, that spotting the signs is often talked about as a preventative measure when clearly it's a, it's after the fact. It's risky because obviously there's a racial profiling risk involved in this. 
and you get people when members of the public do report that they think they've spotted a slave they will report things to helplines like somebody was foreign and looked a bit sad that kind of thing is mm-hmm. it's really not helpful mm. and what we really have to do is say public awareness raising versus solving underlying causes right so in 2018, for the book I FOI, the Cabinet Office, they spent 12 grand on lighting up some buildings red for anti-slavery day. Thanks, Cabinet Office. Wow. And that's, you know, overseeing eight years of like exponential rise in rough sleeping. Destitute people are at really high risk of being exploited because they have no other options. So we're okay lighting up Big Ben or whatever, but we're just going to make people more and more vulnerable over here. Same thing with drug trafficking of children, which is called County Lines. The children most likely to get into it, according to the National Crime Agency's own report, are those with limited economic opportunities. But what we're doing is raising awareness in schools about county lines. So it's really um, about trying to hold up these things and clash them together and say, we are having the wall pulled over our eyes, even though we're apparently being educated. The last thing I just say on that that I think is absolutely vital is that there's a lot of awareness raising towards at-risk groups. So like migrants, people who want to migrate from, for example, African countries. And this is really problematic, racist, and predicated on this idea that those people don't know enough, that they're ignorant in some way, right? That they don't realize that they might get exploited if they migrate. And in reality, what research shows and, you know, what kind of common sense tells you if you understand the global economy is that most people know the risks. They just don't have any better options. Mm. I think it makes so much sense. And what you were saying there about having the wool pulled over our eyes, I think that's why exactly why this book is so important, of course, right? To get yeah. people to have a deeper understanding of just how this frame is functioning, which mm-hmm. is certainly not something I knew. So just to finish off then, knowing what we know about exploitation, what are some of the real policy changes which we need the government to make to stop people from being trafficked and exploited? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I end each chapter trying to outline these. Um, And so very clearly one is repealing hostile environment laws and alongside that introducing a firewall between police and labour inspection and immigration enforcement. So anyone can always report harm if they wish to without fear of immigration control. We have to enforce labour laws properly. We are not doing that at all at the moment. And that has to come hand in hand with unionisation being a respected and vital tool to protect workplaces and workers. We must do a lot on corporate regulation. I already talked about some of that earlier, or even go deeper into business models, but that's a whole other conversation. We also need to ensure there are uh, sufficient social safety nets. The more you have people who cannot access welfare, uh, statutory sick pay, these kind of things, you are making people vulnerable to being exploited. And of course, we need to decriminalise sex work alongside a good anti-trafficking strategy in that sector. Okay, so just just a few starting points there, but um, I am looking forward to reading. <laughs> yeah, so, but I'm looking forward to to reading more in the book. I've got my copy on the way, but I heard today that it's almost sold out. So, lovely listeners, mm. snap them up now. Yes. Yeah, while, while you can to, to read more about this fascinating subject. But sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. Emily Kenway, thank you so much for being with us. It's a really informative, fascinating conversation. If people want to find out more about your work or buy your new book, The Truth About Modern Slavery, where can they go? What should they read? How can they get it? So you can find me on Twitter. Emily Kenway is my name. And I have a website, emilykenway.com. And my book is for sale at all good bookshops or via the wonderful publisher itself, uh, Pluto 
books. Fantastic. Thanks, Emily. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>